Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. I'm just going to read 11 through 13 right now, but we're going to hopefully go through the end of chapter 3. I know. <laughs> yeah, right. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who themselves call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope, without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you once, <clears throat> you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen? Father, we come before you and we ask that as you continue to work on our identity through this book of Ephesians, Lord, that we would know who we were, but we would know more importantly who you are and who we are in you. And I pray that you would renew us in our minds how we are just uh, so prone and to go after and to live after that old life. And Lord, your word is here. Your Holy Spirit is here to transform us. That we are no longer under that old life. We are now in Christ Jesus and all the rich blessings we have in him. And so, Father, by your grace, let your word go forward in the hearts of your people. Protect them from any teaching that is not of you, Lord. And Lord, would you just infuse uh, by your, just mercy and your grace, what is theirs in Christ. And we ask this for us, not only, but also for the kids. Amen. Amen. So, today is, is not a, a touchy-feely, uh, you know, heart, good, feel-good message. It's not a beat-you-over-the-head message. It's theological in nature, is what I'm saying. Paul is, sometimes he lays out some theology Theo meaning God, ology meaning something else, I don't know, but it's about God. <clears throat> and he, there's things that God wants us to know. And Ephesians is really dealing with God's master plan to glorify himself. Master plan to glorify himself. And you're going, oh, well, that's boring. I want to be glorified. You are glorified in his plan. And he's dealing with a church that is, uh, they're Gentiles. They aren't Jews. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul is reminding the Ephesians who they were before they were in Christ, before they received Christ as Savior, before they were born again, who they were and now who they are as followers of Christ. That's what he's doing for the first three chapters. He's spending a lot of time talking about who they were. And he's talking about really a lot about who they are in Christ, what Christ has done for them, their new identity. Their new identity. And it appears that Paul's intent was for them to know their identity, their position in Christ, so that then after knowing who they are, what their position is, they would know what to do. How many of you have got a new job, and you walk into that job, and you, the first thing you're looking for is, what, who am I in this position? What are my responsibilities? And from that, you know what to do. Amen? How many of you have played sports? Man, you put me at right tackle, I would have no idea what to do. And I would quickly find out. 
you know, the, all that, the ramifications of that. And we are living our Christian life many times not working out of our new identity, but our old nature. Anyone? And so why is this Christian life so difficult? Why are things so hard? And, and we don't, isn't it supposed to be great and grand? We're, we're, we're working out of a false identity there. And Christ wants to know, you to know who you are in him, what he has done on your behalf, what is yours right now. It's been done. It's yours. And by the way, what part you have in his plan and what his overarching goal is, and that's what he's talking to the Ephesians about. And so the question is today, do you know who you are in Christ Jesus? And the answer usually is not really. And by the way, that goes for me too. We're all learning. And so Paul is, is, is taking the word of God and he's, and he's changing their minds. And this is how God works in the hearts of believers. He doesn't just tell them, you know, great things. He, he, he works on their minds. He's transforming their minds. They're thinking. He's changing it. He's teaching them to put off the old nature and to put on what is truly theirs, Christ Jesus, their new nature, Christ Jesus, to glorify God. How many of you know that's been a process in your life and in my life? Yes. So positionally, he wants to teach them that they're seated with Christ. And that the whole reason why he wants to teach them who they are in Christ Jesus is so now that they can, they, once they know who they are, what their job description is, so to speak, now they know what to do, how to live it out. And what God has empowered them to do and empowered them to live out by his grace through the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you, when Christians know who they are in Christ Jesus and what he has done what they do will turn the world upside down. And so we ask questions. Why aren't the, the lost being reached? And my answer is, we're, we don't know who we are. We don't know what power we have, the weapons we are, or we refuse to conform. And so we, we ask a lot of questions, but they're all answered in Christ Jesus. And so chapters 1-3 is reminding the, the uh, Ephesians who they are. In the first part of chapter 2, talking about their position, he makes this point of who they were and now who they are. In, in chapter 2, verse 1, real quickly, recapping last week, he tells them they were dead. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. We talked about what that looks like. It means that we try to jump the Grand Canyon in our, in our good nature and all the things we do, and we just fall short. Some of you go a little farther than the others, but what's left is a giant gap, and we're all dead at the bottom. Jesus took us and put us on the other side. And that's what verses 1 through 11 or 1 through 10 are. Verse 1 tells them you're dead in your trespasses. We're all born dead. We're the walking dead. Going after our base nature and our desires, right? Then verse 4 tells them that because of God's great love and mercy and because you have something so great about you, no, just because of his great mercy and his great love, just because God that's in his heart, he looked down upon a dead person, dead people, and what did he do? He made us alive with Christ. He made you alive. He resurrected you. That's what happened. It's done through faith in Jesus Christ. That's who you are, amen? And then verse 10, he tells us why he did that. He says, for we were created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were created to do good works. 
works that were impossible to do when you were dead. Dead people don't react to God. They don't react to anything of God. And that's spiritually dead is what we're speaking of, right? But now that you've been made alive, you respond to God. You hear God. You follow God. You know God. You sense His Spirit in your heart when things are going wrong. And you respond. You say, no more death. I want life. This is goodness. And we walk towards it, hopefully. If not, you're a miserable Christian. Because you can't have one foot in the gutter and one fist in the gold. He's called you to be seated with Christ Jesus. And so what glorifies God is obedience to the calling which God has called us. These are the good works, our, our righteous living, our good living, and our actions based upon what fact? So that God will like us? It's because we're saved. You see, and that's the whole difference between religion and a relationship with God. Religion is, I've got to do these things in order to what? Be saved. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus was our goodness. He came down and lived the life we could not live. He died the death that we should have died. And guess what? Now he fills us with his Holy Spirit, and we are empowered because of what he has done to live that life. That's worship. That's what real worship is. It's a response to the grace of God in our lives. God could have said, you're in hell for all eternity, and he would have been just in doing that, but instead he said, you're forgiven. What does that do? Oh, Lord, my life is yours. What do you want? We just sang about it. Empty of myself, lead me to the cross. I belong to you. I lay me down. That's that heart of worship. Wherever you want me to go, whatever you want me to do, whatever you want me to say, I'm yours. That's what it is, just like Jesus was to the Father. And so, the good works are righteous living, actions based on the fact of who we are in Christ. And so, the question is, do you know who you are in Christ? If you do, the fruit is going to be good works. The fruit is going to be love. The fruit is going to be obedience. Amen? So that's, so today I'm attempting to go through the end of the chapter three, <clears throat> and Paul continues to teach us the then and now, right? The then and now, who our identity is. And so chapter four, so that in chapter four, verse one, you can say to the Ephesians, the prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Worthy of all the things I just told you about. So, verse 11, Therefore, remember that, you, that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, the Jews, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So Paul starts out verse 11 with a therefore. He says, therefore, and when you see that therefore, you've got to find out what it's there for. That's what they, you know, just to let you know. When you're reading therefore, well, what is it there for? And you find out, well, verse 1 through 10, you were dead in light of that truth, and now he tells us five things. He says, in light of the truth, remember who you were. You were Gentiles. You were not God's people. And that's his main point. You were not God's people. And so what does he do? In verse 12, he expounds upon what that means to be a Gentile, to be not God's people, right? The five things, he says in verse 12, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, 
excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. The point is that Gentiles were the enemies of God and his chosen people, the Jews, back before Christ came. And that's what he's talking to, this first-generation church who were Gentiles, And he's looking back and they're going, wow, there's these Jews who were God's people. And we know we're Gentiles. We're outside of that system. Yet the Messiah came through these Gentiles and the gospel, they received the gospel basically. And and, and now the light came for them, but we were outside of that. But now what happened? What's our relationship with them? He's going to talk about all that because it's important in God's plan. So he says, in light of all that other stuff, this is who you were. You were enemies of God and his chosen people, the Jews. Before Christ died, God's plan to reach the world was through the Jews. The Savior of the world would come through the Jews. And this is the thrust of the whole Old Testament. As you're looking at the Old Testament, you're going, wow, that's sick. And why are there all these stories and all these genealogies? What are they talking about? The whole Old, the whole Old Testament is a genealogy of Jesus Christ. Those are all Jesus' relatives, basically. God's plan to bring a Savior through that nation. So God made a covenant through Abraham that through him all the nations would be blessed. And as Abraham believed God, as a sign of that, he was circumcised. That's what set Jews apart from Gentiles who on earth would do that. The Jews would, as a sign, an outward sign of something that had happened inward. Later, after Abraham's descendants became a nation, after 400 years of slavery in Egypt, God raised up a deliverer, Moses, who would bring them God's law, the Ten Commandments is what they're called, and all the other ordinances that they would follow. And this was the Old Covenant, the Old Testament between God and His chosen people, Israel. The Gentiles, they were the uncircumcised. They were not descendants of Abraham. They did not have God's laws. They were not in a covenant relationship with God. They worshiped idols. They were the opposite of what Jews were supposed to reflect and to be. That's who they were. And throughout Israel's history, almost all their enemies were Gentiles. Remember the Amalekites. Remember the Philistines, Goliath, right, and his, and his bros. The Gentiles were exceedingly wicked, having nothing to do with God and and everything to do with the flesh, following the spirit of the age, which we had read about, and were under the rule and the influence of Satan, whereas the Jews were to be a people ruled by God. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul's going to He's still, later on, he's talking, he says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. So the Gentiles had a hardened heart. Their mind was closed off to God. Having lost all sensitivity, dead things lose sensitivity, right? Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so that they indulge in every kind of impurity and they're full of greed. So those are the symptoms of the dead Gentiles. He says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught about him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught to put off that old life and to put on Christ. So this picture of the Gentiles 
And Paul here is speaking to a Gentile church. And he's saying, you were separate from Jesus. You were excluded from his kingdom. You were foreigners to the new covenant and the inheritance of eternal life. You were without hope and you were without God. You see the picture he's painting? That's what Paul is getting at. The Gentiles are a picture, if I might go as far to also say, of the unsaved. This is what people without Jesus in their life, without receiving Jesus as their life, that is, this describes them. You're separated from Jesus. You're excluded. You are foreigners. You are without hope. You are without God. I know those are not popular words in our culture. Everything is about tolerance and inclusion. Amen? He says there's only one way in, and that's through Jesus. And without him, you're out. And so Paul uses words like separated, excluded, and without to describe both what it is to be a Gentile before Christ came, but also what it is to be dead in our sins. Just, just a side note, there were provisions for Gentiles to come into the, to the nation of Israel, just, just to let you know. There were. And as, they, as the Israelites shined their light and as they lived a certain way, as they were separate, they were in the world but not of it, people would see that and they would be drawn to it and there were things they could do to be a part of the covenant people of God. But Paul is saying to the Ephesians in general that they were doomed before Christ. And how many of you like to just talk about doom forever and ever and ever? So, let us focus on doom. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> nah, he always gives you the bad news, right? The bad news. Isn't that what Jesus did when he came to us? The Holy Spirit did. He convicts you. You just see this Grand Canyon gap, and you just go, there is no way. I can meet up with that standard of God. I am doomed. I fall short of God's perfect holiness, His righteous standard. And His Spirit comes along and He convicts us. Why does He come along to convict us? To rub our nose in it? So that we just say, bad dog. (laughs) What's His motive in that? Anybody who has a kid knows what your motive is in pointing out and convicting your children over these things it's so that they would have a life. They would turn away from that and come to you. The children are hard-hearted and stubborn. I have experience in this. I'm not talking about my kids. I was once a child. And guess what? Rebellious hard-hearted, stubborn, and more importantly, to my God. But verse 13 comes along. But now, that was then. This is now. Now, in Christ Jesus, this is who you are. I want you to know who you are, kids. Right? This is what the Lord's saying to us. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once were, who were far away have been brought near. How? How are you brought near to God? By the blood of Jesus Christ. Newsflash, no one gets near to God. No one touches God. No one approaches God. No one, we can't. There's a Grand Canyon between us. The only way that we come near to God is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That is how a man, how a woman, how 
anyone, a, a kid, is drawn near to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. You were far off, but now you've been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus. Our sin is what separates us. Verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians is what separates. We're dead. We talked about that. The Grand Canyon Gap, and the only way for our sin to be removed is by the shedding of blood. And because all mankind is sinful, our blood is tainted. It doesn't work. We can't pay for our own sins. But Jesus, the Messiah, the spotless lamb, the perfect one, died as a sacrifice, a substitution for us. He died in your place, in my place, his perfection for my depravity. And his blood takes away the sins of the world. And through faith in that sacrifice and his resurrection, resurrection, we've been brought near. That's how. Why did God do that? Why did God send his only son? Because he loves you. Why does he love you? I don't know. I asked that my own question. Why does he love me? Why would you do that? I have no idea. I mean, I understand. Yeah, he loves me. But what is that? That love has to override all that I've done and am. And will continue to do. It does. And let me tell you this morning, I think the Lord just, there is no sin that the love of God cannot cover and, and wash away. And I speak from experience. Without going into detail, there's no sin that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover and draw you near to him. That's why he says, it's by grace you're saved through faith and not of works, nothing you could do. It's a gift. You can't say, oh, thank you for your gift. Here's 10 bucks in return. That's, you know, what? So chapter 2 talks about that. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And now Paul wants the Ephesian Gentiles to know the relationship to the people of God. So if we've been brought near, what about us and, and the Jews? And how does that all work out? And what's our relationship with the Lord now? And so, so he says in verse 14, uh, you know, I mean, are we still at odds? Are, we still, are they still our enemies? Is that still going on? Should it go on? Because you got Jewish believers and you have Gentile believers and you have Jewish non-believers and Gentile non-believers all around the place. What's going on here? Sort it out. This is important in their culture. <clears throat> Does God save Presbyterians? I'm not sure. There's war. I think he wants to change our thinking about some things. Amen but we've got to center on the, thi- the thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If they're not in the gospel, they're not in. But if they're in the gospel, guess what? There's a lot there. Does God say Baptist? Are, are you sure? There's, what about, what's the difference there? How do they get in? Are we still at war with the Baptists, Southern Baptists, Northern Baptists? Serious problems, serious division over some serious issues. God had to change some thinking. How many de- denominations do we have? 33,000? I'm serious. Think that pleases the heart of the Lord? <clears throat> There's, you know, we, we, we enjoy diversity. <clears throat> and God talks about diversity, but guess what? In the, in, the, in, the, uh, in the context of diversity, it's always about unity. And that's what he's talking about here. 
So local situation, Jews and Gentiles. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What was that? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and its regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through what? Through discussion, through payments, through a contract, through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you, Ephesians, and by the way, all of us Gentiles in here, who were far away and peace to you who were near the Jews. Jews and Gentiles were at war, as I mentioned. Almost all of Israel's enemies were Gentiles. There was this hostility between them. There was a hostility between these two groups, these two groups, and I like what David Guzik says on this. He says, The source of contention between Jew and Gentile was the fact that Gentiles did not keep the law. They were lawless. But since Jesus fulfilled the law on their behalf, on our behalf, And since he bore the penalty for our failure to keep the law, we are reconciled through his work on the cross, putting to death the source of contention. So both groups now have peace with God through Jesus. As a matter of fact, they only have peace. What happened? Are they they Jews and Gentiles any longer? No. They're made into one body. And so in the body of Christ... Are there Baptists in CCFers? No. Through Christ, we're one. We're one in Him. I realize there's serious theological differences, and I'm not making light of those. There are things to where we can't fellowship with one another when people deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when people deny that Jesus died on the cross and rose again, when they, they endorse all kinds of sin into the pulpit and into the church, they endorse what is evil and Christ saved us from as now the standard to which God has given us grace to live out. It's like, what in the world are you talking about? He saved us from that stuff, not to go promote it from the pulpit. Are you kidding me? So there are things that we disfellowship over. But truly in Christ we're one. And that's, that was his point. The only way for our sin to be removed is by the shedding of blood. And, and that's what made us one. The source of contention bete- between the Jews and the Gentiles was resolved at the cross. And this is what Paul is driving at, that they were one body. And this is the picture he starts to use. They're no longer Gentiles. They're no longer Jews. They're rather one new humanity. This was a big deal back then. I know you might be going, okay, well, what's this to me? This is God's plan. He wants you to know it. It's in his word. It's for you to understand how he works. He, know his character, his thinking. You need to know your God. Your life isn't just how this relates to me. It's about who he is. Who is he? 
How does he work? How does he plan? How does he deal with people at opposition? What was his plan for the Jews? What was his plan for the Gentiles? What's my role in that? What's my identity? That's what he's getting at. That was important to this church. They needed to know who they were. You're no longer Gentiles. You're part of something new called the church. And so Paul uses a picture to start to describe the identity and unity that we have in the picture is the body of Christ. Both groups were reconciled through the cross. He made into one new humanity, the body, the church. And so positionally, there's no more Gentile and Jew. We're one. And what's the proof? Verse 18, for through him, we have access to the Father by two spirits, by one spirit. It's the same Holy Spirit which we access the Father. Jews and Gentiles who are born again have access to the Father by the same Spirit. We all have been born again, not into separate groups, but into one family, one body, through one Spirit who gives us access to the Father. In verse 19, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. That's your, now, your new identity. You're no longer all those other things. You are now fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You're not slaves. You're members. You're family members. Praise God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself self as the chief cornerstone. See, I'm telling you, theology is happening here. A lot of things that people would have understood by these words. So Paul is letting loose on those Gentiles in Ephesus that they're no longer those things. They're now new in Christ Jesus. They have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. They have peace with God. Just put yourself in this place. You've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You have peace with God. You have unity with this people. And you have access to God through the Spirit. You're fellow citizens with God's people. You're members of His household. You're not servants. Not slaves, your members, your family, amen, that's who you are. And now Paul uses another picture to describe the church. He's taken it, he uses three big things to describe who the church is, a bride, a building, and a body. Three Bs. God makes it simple for me to remember things. Like, how do you remember that? B. <laughs> Thank you. And now Paul uses that picture. So in verse 19, he uses the building picture. And this is describing unity. So in verse 19, he says, we are fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Verse 20, here it is, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, that picture of a building being built together. You who are going to go into, uh, who are studying Revelation and BSF, you're going to get to chapter 20 and he's going to talk about the new Jerusalem coming down. What in the world is that building? It hurts my head. Christ is in the building. He's in the building. What is the building? Who is he in? I, I mean, I don't get it. It's beyond my dimension. And this, this city, this New Jerusalem, comes down as a bride. Who's that? I'm, I'm just saying. My mind is, what's going on there? That's for you later fascinating study. Nevertheless, we're built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles were there after Jesus came. What happened? They were sent by God to proclaim his word. The prophets, what did they do? They spoke the words of God. The foundation is the word of God. We stand upon what he says. What is the enemy's tactic? What did he say? 
to Eve right off the bat in Genesis chapter 3. Know it. He said, did God really say? And that is his tactic throughout humanity. The word of God is trash. You can't stand upon it. Come over here and stand on my philosophy. And that is the lie. Look around you. Look at the universe. Look at how we interact with one another. I'll tell you what, it lines up more with the word of God than any other thing. (coughs) Use your minds. So, verse 19, 20, built upon the prophets, right? Sorry about that. And it says that Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. The chief cornerstone, just a real quick picture, the stone that's most important stone in the whole building. Together, it it was the stone that everything else was measured off of, okay? When they were building the building. It, It was what you could just say, okay, well, this is the corner, and now we know everything else that can be measured off of that. Jesus is what we measure our lives off of, of what we choose to do and not do. When we as Christians who are now part of this new community, we don't base decisions based upon what the world says in their philosophies. We were Gentiles, now we're in Christ. We base our lives upon what he says. Does our, do our lives measure up with his word, his plan, his thought? So when you have a decision to make, we don't go to Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil has a lot of great thoughts. I'm not knocking them. A lot of common sense. Who do we go to? Go to the Word of God. First Timothy 3.16, the Word of God is profitable for what? Yeah, to teach, exhort, correct, rebuke. So that the person in Christ may be built up You need building up. You need correction. You need guidance. The Word of God. And so what is the one thing the enemy wants to keep us away from? The Word of God. What does he want me to do with you on Sunday morning? He wants me to entertain you to death. That's what he wants. Anything but what's in here. Let's be light and fluffy and talk about all this peripheral crud. And meanwhile, you're not built up whatsoever. You're entertained. And that is what our culture wants. And I'm not saying we can't have jokes and all that stuff. But that's not the main reason we're here. We're here to build you up in the Word. You need to know who you are. In Him, the foundation. I don't want you to give you a foundation of anything else. You stand upon Him and what He says. Not even what Pastor Matt says. The holy and righteous Pastor Matt. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you go, you take what I say and you go, does he really say that? And you jump in there and you go to the Word. Not to be mean to me. Don't, don't get mean. I'm not looking for any kind of attack. I'm just, go, what does God say? Because that's who you're, you're built on. We're almost there. You know, we're almost there means we're halfway. Maybe. No, we're, we are almost there. But he's the, the idea was that the Jews as a nation would reject the Messiah. This is what Jesus talks about in Mark 12 about the chief cornerstone. But later, some Jews and Gentiles would accept him. 
And they would be the building of the church with Jesus as the chief cornerstone. Verse 21, moving on. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Imagery here. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's what the church is. We're a bride. We're a building. Amen? And the other B, I can't remember. Body. Thank you, Christine, my lovely wife. Help me. Yep. So Jews and Gentiles are reconciled through Christ, and they're made into one body, one building, one bride, right? And God lives in us by his Holy Spirit. You go to the candles in Revelation, the candle's a picture of the churches, and, and he's coming, he's, Jesus is going in and around his churches. He's just hovering around that light. The body is indwelt by a spirit, are we not? The Old, temp- uh, Old Testament temple was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. That's where his glory dwelt. And this is the picture Paul's getting at. You here at CCF, you were far off. You were far out and not in a good way. You were way out there. But you were separated from Jesus. You were excluded. You were foreigners without hope, without God. You were at war with God's people. But now through Christ, you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus. You now have peace with God, unity with his people, access to God through the Spirit. You're fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household. You were unified with God's people. You are the body of Christ where his spirit dwells. You are the building of God where his spirit dwells. You're built upon his word with Jesus tying us all together. And this was God's master plan from before the foundations of the earth. And now Paul's going to expand upon the plan and talk about how it was designed uh, to glorify God. And And I won't get into it. But he said, he just in chapter 3, verse 1, he goes on, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation. And I have already written, uh, briefly written about it. And he starts talking about what's the mystery? The mystery is that God would include us. The Old Testament that was hidden. God desires to include Gentiles in his family, outsiders. And the picture is a banquet. The king had a banquet, and he had a table set, and he invited all the prominent people. He said, I want you to come to my banquet. And like most banquets, people go, okay, I'll, yeah, I'll be there. And they don't show up. But what really happened is they said, I'm busy. I got things to do. It's not a priority, is what they were saying. I just got married. I just bought some land, whatever the excuses are. And these people did not come. And so the person who was going out and giving the invitations came back to Jesus and what did, or came back to God. And God said, hey, what's going on? Or the king, sorry, excuse me. And what happened? He got mad. He said, you know what? They rejected me. They don't want it. Go out to people who are lame. Go out to people who are poor. Go out to the unruly, all those other people, and invite them in. You guys. Me as chief example of that. Come on in. The Jews rejected Christ. 
And because of the rejection of Christ, he went out to us, lame beggars. All are invited. You're all invited. All. Jesus made the way. He paid your price. Through faith in him, you have a seat at the table. You're forgiven. You're not just a guest. You become a son. You become a daughter. The alternative is that you remain aliens. You remain excluded. You remain separated. And when you kick off, when your final heartbeat sets, you will remain excluded. You will remain alienated. You will remain outside. You will remain without hope. You will remain without God. So the gospel is good news. Come in. God's grace is here for you. Amen? Do you know who you are? Because it's going to determine what you do. I want you to bask, not in what you've done, not in your failures, not in all those things. Bask in who he is. Bask in what he's done, what he said, his promises, what he will do, and you will find out that your life and your actions will change accordingly. <clears throat> abide in me and let my words abide in you. You're going to have fruit. You're going to start asking the Father for things, and he's going to grant it because in that, he's glorified. I paraphrase that, but you get the idea. Church, it's important that you know who you are. It's important that you teach your kids, your grandkids, who they are in Christ Jesus, not with the world. Don't teach them to be Gentiles. Be conformed. Be conformed in your thinking and how you live based upon not just doing the right thing, but based upon who you are now. Amen? We all have a long way to grow. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you. Thank you for your rich, vast mercy towards us. In this room, no doubt there's just, man, we are, we've had grand canyons of death. Sins that we were ashamed to, to admit, the lives and the thoughts and all that type of stuff, the things we've done, and yet you reach down and you grab us by grace and you've paid for the price and you've set us on the other side. And we just want to rejoice in you and say thank you. And forgetting those things that were behind and now living, seated in Christ Jesus in all the promises and the hope and the power that is ours now in you. Change our thinking and our minds, Lord, by your Spirit right now. Let us focus deeply upon the person and the power and the love of Jesus Christ from you, Father. And Lord, if there's someone here this morning who has not surrendered their life to Jesus Christ, they are Gentiles on the outside. God in his grace has offered his son on your behalf that you would have eternal life. And all you have to do is receive it, repent, and he will save. 
Father, we just ask that you would draw them close to your heart today, all of us, that we would be one in you and that we would be about your plan for this world and you would get much maximum glory. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.